Well, good morning to everybody around the country. I'm Bill Glaskell, Senior Vice President and Head of State and Local Initiatives at the Volcker Alliance. I'm joined today by Susan Wachter, Co-Director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research and our partner in these special briefings. This is the first special briefing on the fiscal impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic on American states and cities. And we welcome you all. Uh, we welcome your questions in advance Perhaps later on we'll be able to do live questions, but right now in advance, we want this to be a conversational experience really built around strategies that policymakers and policy advocates can use in this terrible time. Today's unemployment numbers are pretty grim. We're in the 20s of millions of people who have filed for unemployment and probably headed for a 20% unemployment rate. Hopefully the pandemic and this, uh, this horrible economic situation won't last long, but for now, it's a really big deal for the nation's health and the nation's fiscal health. I'm going to introduce our panelists in a second, but first, thank you to our great Volcker Alliance staff, Chris Reed, Melissa Austin, Nelia Stevens, and Sarah Morningred, and at the Penn IUR, uh, and Max Donawald, uh, especially Max Donawald, and Susan and Eugenie Birch. That's about it for, for housekeeping details. I just want to put a little plug in for next week at 11 o'clock, Thursday, the 23rd at 11, we'll be featuring Dan White, Barrett and Green, who many of you know, and Scott Patterson, formerly of NASBO and the National Governors Association, talking about the big picture stress testing, stress testing budgets, and the role of rainy day funds. So on to today, we're featuring Tom Ross, who I'll introduce in a second, uh, Susan Dick Ravitch, uh, Volcker Alliance Director and former Lieutenant Governor of New York and Guru on Fiscal Stress, and Matt Fabian, our in-house consultant at Municipal Market Analytics, who has helped us immeasurably over the years in grading the states. So with that, welcome again, and I'm going to turn the mic over to Tom Ross, the Volcker Alliance President, to, uh, to give you a couple of words of introduction. Tom? Thank you, Bill. Good morning to everyone. Uh, as Bill said, my name is Tom Ross and I'm privileged to serve as the president of the Volcker Alliance. Uh, the Alliance was founded by Paul Volcker in 2013. Our mission is to advance the effective management of government to obtain results that matter to citizens. It's my honor to also welcome you to our inaugural briefing on the impact of COVID-19 on the fiscal outlook of states and local governments. I wanna thank Bill our Senior Vice President and Director of State and Local Initiatives at the Alliance, as well as our partner, Susan Wachter, uh, the Co-Director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research, for launching this uh, virtual panel series during this critical time. Over the past month, we have collectively witnessed an epic event wholly upending and disrupting our daily lives. Many of us are separated from our friends, family, and coworkers. Some of us have tragically lost friends, relatives, or coworkers in the pandemic. And even as we are beginning to grapple with a new normal, public servants and other essential workers across this country are risking their own lives and those of their families to provide the basic services on which we've come to depend. Government works in a myriad of ways. And as we carve out a new path for this country in the coming months and years, it is these public servants, healthcare workers and essential employees who will play a critical role in our recovery and beyond. Today, we are discussing the fiscal shock sweeping state and local governments, uh, which provide much of the infrastructure and many of the basic services on which we all depend, 
and produce 20% of America's GDP. Also, they are the entities which must administer the trillions of dollars in federal aid that will shape a post-COVID-19 America. On February 20th, the Volcker Alliance released Truth and Integrity in State Budgeting, the Balancing Act, our third annual report on the states. Just as the substantial impact of COVID-19 was becoming clear to policymakers. Income and withholding tax revenues are in sharp decline with more than 20 million people suddenly without work. Sales tax revenues have dropped significantly as decline in retail sales are setting records. And in this crisis environment, states and cities must determine how they will manage their finances in in the short term and the long term. The coronavirus pandemic is making it abundantly clear that the survival and security of people everywhere depends on government. Here at the Volcker Alliance, we will be watching what states do to stay afloat with a keen interest. And as always, we'll continue to advocate for informed fiscal practices and decision-making in this pandemic period and in the recovery that lies ahead once the pandemic abates. We hope today's conversation will be helpful as many of you who are on the front lines face difficult decisions. With that, I'd like to again welcome each of you and turn the mic back over to Bill Glasgow, who will discuss the fiscal risk and impacts that states currently face amidst this crisis. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, I'm going to uh, do a very brief uh, little tap dance through the numbers and what our numbers suggest states and and cities are likely to do. And then Susan Walker is going to speak about the big picture. So we grade the states every year on their budget practices on a grade of A, A to D in five critical areas. Our last grades came out in February of this year. It was before the, the pandemic really took hold of America and the world. So they're backward looking. They're for, they're for fiscal 2017 through 19, but they, they tell us a lot about states' propensity to especially to do one-time actions, one-time maneuvers to balance their budget. In good times, it's never a great idea to uh, support ongoing expenditures with one-time measures like borrowing, fund transfers, uh, rainy day fund drawdowns. In times of shock like this, one-time measures are inevitable, almost acceptable. But uh, the question is what states will do once uh, once things return back to normal. So let's look at the big picture very closely, and then I'll spend about a minute and a half looking at what some states are doing and what we, th- we think states will be doing. The big picture is my friend Ron Fisher at Michigan State the other day came out with a very good back-of-the-envelope estimate on uh, on tax losses, how much, how much tax is going to be foregone. In this, uh, in this coronavirus period. He figures it's going to run about 100 to $110 billion for the rest of this year and the next fiscal year. Out of state and local spending of $2.2 trillion, it's a significant amount. What's also interesting is that the Fed's bond buying program, which totals about $500 billion for municipalities, can probably more than cover that revenue gap. So we expect states to be borrowing pretty heavily. I'll get to that in uh, in one second. So let's look at some of the some of the 
the strategies states are likely to use and are using now. So number one, uh, states may draw down money from rainy day funds. That is the states that have them. Wyoming has enough in its rainy day fund to support all of its general fund spending for a year. That's really remarkable. Other states are less fortunate. California has got $21 billion in rainy day funds and other reserves stashed away because Jerry Brown put the state on a course, uh, on a savings course several years ago. However, you have states like Illinois that has uh, basically minutes worth of spending in its rainy day fund. New Jersey and Pennsylvania that put about a billion dollars a piece in last year, but that's not going to support a $40 billion budget very long. New York is also kind of short on, uh, on rainy day fund money. Nationally, the median is about 8% of general fund spending. So that's really less than, a, covers less than a month. So states are going to have to depend on other revenue sources to balance the, the books and as well as, as, as spending restrictions. We're seeing in New Jersey, for example, Governor Murphy, right at the start, sequestered a billion dollars, almost a billion dollars in appropriated funds. We're seeing that duplicated really around the country. Uh, we're also seeing suggestions that there are going to be uh, there are going to be some spending cuts. Politico is reporting that Illinois is looking at 10 to 25 percent cuts in uh, in programs for for children, seniors, and the disabled. Uh, New York, in its new budget, has Medicaid program cuts that were scheduled already uh, that will kick in at, at some point. Uh, so we're, we're seeing spending freezes, hiring freezes, spending cuts, travel restrictions. And I suspect if this continues much longer, it's going to start to eat into the, the, real, uh, the real meat of basic services. We're going to see a lot of borrowing. As I mentioned, the Fed has a short-term borrowing program going on to alleviate immediate liquidity challenges, especially those caused by moving the income tax filing deadline to July 15th. The Fed is also working on a program for longer term bond buying, and that will probably help states out greatly because in the CARES Act, there's really no explicit funding for state deficits. It's, it's all coronavirus related, although I've seen some examples like uh, Daryl Steinberg, the mayor of Sacramento, is, uh, is angling to get some capital projects included in there. So we'll, we'll see what, where that goes as the rules are written. So we're going to see New York has, has already proposed in its new budget borrowing $11 billion. Governor Pritzker in Illinois is uh, is proposing pretty heavy borrowing on top of its uh, its normal practice of paying its bills two to three years late. New Jersey is just now advancing a proposal to do deficit borrowing, even though state law prohibits that. He's trying to find a way around that. We're also going to see inevitably borrowing from uh, the federal government for unemployment funds, state unemployment trust funds can't really stand the, the the shock of 20 odd million people filing for claims in a couple of weeks. I expect that the 22 unemployment trust funds that are below the federal minimum solvency level are all going to have to go to the labor department hat in hand. Uh, there's a cost to that. During the uh, during the, the aftermath of the last recession, California borrowed heavily, Connecticut, New York, New York borrowed three and a half billion dollars, New Jersey, Michigan, I believe, borrowed a couple of billion apiece. This is an important safety valve, but it has costs down the road in terms of paying interest or raising employer taxes to support this. And over the past few years, actually, most states have cut their uh, their employer taxes, so we may see a reversal there. 
Finally, in terms of one-time maneuvers, it's not really just being discussed very much, but a typical strategy is to continue to underfund the, the state pension or OPEB system. That's the retiree health care provision. States can do this by extending the amortization period of the existing unfunded balance, or uh, as a number of states did, just not contribute the actuarial recommendation. What that does is create a debt that compounds at seven to eight percent a year in in general the uh, the discount rate pension funds use uh, so states will be building up a lot of debt in a number of areas we'll see how it all how it all shakes out when the economy recovers how much of this debt gets paid off sooner rather than later matt fabian will talk about that later and i think that's about it for strategies we, we've seen i'm going to turn the mic now over to my colleague susan wachter uh, from her perch in Philly to talk about big picture stuff. And then we'll get to Dick Ravitch talking about his experience with municipal stress and Matt Fabian and the market. So Susan, all yours. Thank you so much, Dick. And welcome to all who are joining us. I am co-director of Penn Institute for Urban Research, and our mission is to inform inclusive and sustainable local, state, and municipal policies. And needed more than ever in this epic event that Tom so well named it. It's the state and local governments that are at the front line, and we can look to the great financial crisis to see the lag impact, but I believe that this event is going to be even deeper with an unprecedented pressure on local and state budgets. The main point that I want to emphasize is that the length of the downturn, the length of the recession, is what's critical here for state and local governments, and it isn't that the length is independent of the uh, events that are going to follow for state and locals. The longer this persists, the deeper it will be for state and locals, and state and local cutbacks, which are beginning, as we heard from Bill, and I can attest to right here in Philadelphia, uh, state and local cutbacks that are now beginning and are planned to go deeper will contribute to the downturn. The uh, first leg of the downturn is in process, and predictions are that national GDP in the second quarter may decline as much as 30 percent. The third quarter and fourth quarter, uh, third quarter flat, fourth quarter bounce back. But this bounce back will not occur if the contrary winds coming from state and local cutbacks are are in place. So the second leg downturn that we may look to may be driven by the state and local cutbacks, which of course will be uh, contrary to exactly what's needed uh, for the uh, battles that are being fought on these front lines of this contagion. So <clears throat> whether there is a second leg downturn depends on uh, state and local actions right now uh, that's powered by, driven by state cutbacks. And in part, there are uh, rainy day funds that Bill has alluded to that are being pulled down. And in part, there is a federal government response, which may not be sufficient depending on the length of the downturn. The federal government response has been unprecedented. Uh, in the great financial crisis, there wasn't an assistance to the state and locals as there is now. And the municipal liquidity fund, again, is uh, unprecedented. So we'll see how this plays out. And uh, I am going to now turn this to Dick Ravitch, who has vision for the future 
and has in the past been critically important to municipal safety and, and rebounds as, in, as when he was lieutenant governor of New York and helped rescue New York. There is um, little to learn from what happened in New York and Detroit and Puerto Rico because they got into trouble largely because they used borrowed money to cover their operating expenses and the market stopped lending to them and therefore they were insolvent. That is not the case today. Obviously, the problem today is, is quite different and far more significant in dollar volume than anything that anybody faced before. It's not a function of bad budgeting, which is the cause of what happened in New York and Detroit and Puerto Rico and other places as well, like Illinois and Connecticut. But I think that what is germane is that everybody's talking about how to get rescued. So far, there's been little talk about whether the scope of services that government provides is to be reexamined and reduced. In in the case of New York and uh, other places, there's been a reduction. In New York, we had a control board. We had a group of people who were appointed pursuant to a state statute that uh, had the power to approve budgets that were otherwise subject to only the jurisdiction of elected officials. And there was a an outcry of indignation about the imposition of so-called expertise on what activities the city should engage in, for example, increasing or decreasing the number of garbage pickups uh, uh, were cut in half in New York in order to save money from the Department of Sanitation budget. These decisions are very hard for people who run for office to make, but there was a consensus that there would be a group appointed by elected officials, by governors and mayors, uh, and controllers who would make those decisions. And I think that as the next weeks unfold, you will see a significant effort on the part of some to reduce services uh, and indeed, in many cases, the functions that state and local governments provide. But the, um, the Fed which has taken a very bold step to provide short-term relief, considers what they're going to do in the longer term as deficits grow. Uh, City of New York's projected deficit, according to the Citizens Budget Commission, is going to be as much as $12 billion. That's a revenue shortfall. Uh, That assumes no reduction in the scope of services. Well, I don't think as a political matter, if that was the number, that that's going to be provided in order for New York to continue the level of service that it has provided to its citizens over these past years. And I think that's an issue that's got to be raised and discussed 
what is the mechanism for cutting expenses, who has the power to decide, and how necessary is this to get the political support for otherwise providing what are significantly inflationary remedies to provide for the cash shortfalls to keep essential services functioning. I raise all of this because this is part of the dialogue that's going to develop over the next few weeks, particularly as public consideration, political consideration is given to the question of what the federal government, the Federal Reserve Board can do to provide long-term assistance to states and cities. I think that's enough. I'd be glad to answer questions, Bill. Well, thank you, Dick. That's that's very perceptive. One thing to, to bear in mind is in terms of control boards, states states are are, are sovereign, so there's gonna there might be some sort of voluntary agreement down the road. We also have the example of Washington, DC, that's not a sovereign, but is still under the threat of a control board being some being uh, summoned into action. It's a congressional control board. And the the independent CFO Jeff DeWitt has that power. So uh, there are some structures. Perhaps Susan later on can talk about how Philly was under a control system for uh, thirty odd years, uh, as well as Pittsburgh and several other several other cities. So we have we have some examples, but applying it on a national scale is going to be really really something else. Uh, I want to introduce now Matt Fabian. Matt is with Municipal Market Analytics. He's a consultant to the Volcker Alliance. MMA is the foremost independent municipal finance consulting firm. They are out there on the cutting edge every every day. And Matt, there's a lot to talk about right now because the Fed is already in the market and is going to be in the market with both hands and both feet. So tell us how, how big, how long, how strong, what what's what can our listeners out there in finance offices and budget offices what can they count on? What what do they need to do? Thanks, Bill. And thanks, everybody, for um, agreeing to listen to me. The Fed has recently rolled out, effectively, what's its third program to impact municipal governments and the municipal bond market. The first two, just by the way, were related to the uh, money market funds, and they helped the market pull out of what was sort of the abject selling of, of mid-March. What's going on now is is addressing the immediate cash flow needs of state and local governments. So they've rolled out the MLF. This is a $500 million total uh, lending program that's ultimately funded through the CARES Act, but it's separate from from the the direct aid provisions of the CARES Act. Remember that uh, Congress gave the Fed roughly $454 billion from which to create lending and support programs for uh, entities, including state and local governments. Okay, so under this $500 million MLF program, eligible borrowers are states and plus the 25 largest cities and counties. The loans uh, will take the form of notes and they will need to target, like Dick had said, they will need to, to target deficits created by the pandemic. The loans have to be originated by September and then retired within 24 months. So it's a very short term funding program. Questions like how will the Fed set the interest rates? What's the security that uh, states will have to pledge um, against repayment? Those are unclear still, right? And the Fed may also put a private entity 
in place to operate it as they have several of the other programs, we don't know yet. So more, more details will be coming in particular when their FAQ comes out maybe in a couple of weeks um, for the MLF program. But, but the program itself, right, it's primarily aimed at states and the largest governments addressing this, the, the, the income shock for, or the, the, the revenue shock from the postponement of the income tax payment date from April to uh, July, which is beyond the end of the fiscal year of most states. So that's formally, you know, maybe maybe the biggest part of this, but it also overall, it's large enough to provide bridge financing to really the fiscal 2022 budget, giving states and, and locals the time to adjust their budgets to whatever conditions their local economies are in, in 2022. It also gives the states financing to run their own programs for their local governments, right? So states, just like the Fed is giving money to the states to address cash flow, states can do the same for locals. And in effect, the Fed is providing financing for that. So allowing the states to fund a, a, a short-term cash flow program at a very low cost. Now, they're doing this, steering the money to and through the states was probably a critical feature, right? Because if you think of Right, there are 90,000 local units in America, right? And so they've shrunk that to just 75, and mostly the strongest credits. So this helps the program roll out faster, and it probably lets it be as large as it is, right? So the Fed is running this $500 billion program with a $500 billion program with a $35 billion loss reserve that comes from Treasury via the CARES Act. So that's roughly a 14 times leverage, levering that money roughly 14 times. There's no way they could do that level of leverage if every local unit were involved. Local government you know, lending uh, is difficult. There's no standardization. There's no transparency. It's a, it's a hard market for even an entity as smart as the Fed, and, you know, excellent people at the Fed, but for them to jump into this market is no easy task. So what they're also doing is giving relief to the third-party lending market, right? There's been a lot of bank loans already written. Commonwealth of Massachusetts took out a billion dollars just this week. Illinois is talking about doing something similar. There's been an explosion of loans. What the Fed program does is prevent the largest borrowers like California and New York from absorbing all of that third-party credit before other governments would, would have access to it. And like overall, this is part of the solution, right? Maybe it's the most one of the most immediate parts, it's not everything. Uh, I mean, I would have preferred that the Fed also provide some kind of relief to municipal uh, dealer balance sheets, right? Let them grow their market-making efforts that have been reduced by the recent volatility and make us into a more resilient market going forward. And the Fed also isn't buying outstanding bonds. It's not backstopping the primary market. But those things aren't maybe as necessary because the market has come back quite a bit it is not where it was, surely, and probably you know may may never get back to where it was on March 9th before all of this started. But every day, you know, things improve and stabilize. Um, longer term, right? So in you know over the over the next few months, maybe the Fed also could roll out a program that would provide longer term loans to governments. I would imagine because of the constraints of trying to figure out what's a geo versus what's a water sewer across 50 states is a very complicated task. So if they were to do another lending program, I would think the easiest way would be the same kind of mechanism of here, steering the money through the states. 
But if they're going to write longer term loans, ones that mature for, you know, beyond 24 months, then it's probably going to be less of a cash flow program, more about uh, rebuilding the economy, stimulus oriented things, you know, maybe encouraging states to not cut back on their infrastructure as they probably are otherwise because of the recession uh, that's coming. So, but, you know, again, this is just me guessing and, you know, I guess we will ultimately see what happens. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Matt. That, that's that's really terrific. Before we get to uh, questions, which many of you in the audience have submitted in advance, I've got a quick question for, for Matt, uh, which Susan raised just before we, we went on air. Great, the, the, the Fed's in there lending, maybe it'll be lending long, long term. What's this gonna cost? You know, if you're a, if you're a low rated borrower like uh, New Jersey or Illinois, how is this going to compare with with what a uh, what, what a AAA borrower, like Maryland or Utah, uh, if they kind of, if they also go to the Fed window? What's what's this going to cost taxpayers? I mean, we have different kinds of borrowing. Obviously, the the profusion of new cash flow borrowing, sort of lines of you know working lines of capital and things like that, are you know currently governments are paying somewhere north of 100 basis points, 125, 150 basis points plus the floating rate of their choice, whether it's CIFMA or, or SOFR or what have you. So, and that's, you know, that spread, that 120, 150 basis points is, you know, not quite triple of what governments were paying before, but the rates are higher. I'm assuming that whatever rate the Fed ultimately chooses, governments would be lower or at least highly competitive with the private lending market on the fixed income borrowing side, you know, high quality states, uh, AA and AAAs, you know, can still borrow in the, for sort of intermediate term money at two, two and a half percent. Riskier credits are maybe, are, are maybe borrowing at 200 basis points or 2% on top of that, maybe a bit more in the case of Illinois. But yeah, so the idea I would think is that the rates are going to be competitive with all of those without attaching you know, such a punitive spread against the weakest credits, because in theory, you know, like the Detroits of the world who maybe can't afford to pay as much of a spread as others, you would think that that will come into into consideration. But, you know, I don't I mean, we have to wait for the FAQ. That's great. I'm going to come back to the market in, in a second. But we've got a bunch of questions uh, that tie into a theme that Dick Dick raised about uh, strings attached for more federal aid, whether it's credit or, or grants. We talked a little bit about control boards. We've got people on the panel who have who have lived through this. Dick has lived through the the New York City control board period. Susan is based in in Pennsylvania, which has very aggressive intervention for for states. Tom in North Carolina uh, is North Carolina is another state with very aggressive oversight, if not if not intervention. Uh, and we've got a bunch of questions about how school districts are gonna are gonna function in this. California is unique because it, it's very hands-off as far as cities and counties go, but very hands-on as far as school districts go because the, the state provides a great deal of, the, of the, the financing for them. So who would like to, to speculate on what kind of uh, control system or surveillance system may, may come out of uh, all, this, all this federal cash being funneled down to, to, to states and, and localities? Well, I will take a bold, aggressive position here and say none, because I'm hoping that this is going to be over within the year. But of course, if it's not, then then we're going to see a replay along the lines that Dick Ravage so well uh, put out there. But right now, this is truly a liquidity 
facility to get state and locals that's, that's been put up by the Fed to get over the initial tax uh, delays that's coming from the federal income tax delays and the initial budget pressures. If indeed it goes on, there's going to be um, major questions for the United States, which are really quite different than for other countries. It's uh, perhaps not well appreciated in the U.S. how how much we differ from the rest of the world in the uh, large discretion that state and local governments have in terms of the major share of government expenditures that are local and state, and and the lack of discretion, obviously, then, to uh, expand their debt. They need to balance their budget. So that places the United States in a more fragile position, and it, there will need to be attention to this if it appears that the uh, recession persists beyond this year. Well, that's a very good point. Dick, do you want to continue on your uh, control board uh, theme? or controls theme? Well, again, to amplify what Susan just said, there is such a significant difference in the relationship between city and state expenditures and federal expenditures in the United States that doesn't exist elsewhere in the world. And the, the cities and states outspend the federal government for non-defense purposes, uh, like 20 to 1. So, and most essential services uh, that the public benefits from uh, or is dependent on uh, are paid for, whether it's police, fire, sanitation, are paid for by state and local governments. So it's not terribly easy to reduce to a significant degree, the level of expenditure without having a dramatic impact on the quality of, um, on the nature of the services that the public is dependent upon. And whereas at the margin, which is in, with the benefit of hindsight, what we had to address in the states and cities that have faced fiscal stress is a very different question from the one that we're going to face now, if unemployment continues to grow at this level or can be sustained at this level, and the economy is going to result in dramatic reduction in state and local tax revenue. So this is a qualitatively, not just quantitatively, different problem than we lived with before. Well, thank you very much, Dick. I wanted to uh, to get to a question of property taxes, but first I wanted to, to just do a first pass kind of answer on a couple of questions we've received from uh, uh, the audience. One is, once our state receives federal relief funds, can we put that money into an interest-bearing account until we need to draw down the funds? The second is, can CARES Act fund be used to su supplant tax declines? I'm not a tax lawyer nor a federal process lawyer. What I suggest you do is Treasury, just uh, a day or so ago, put up an FAQ page to explain all of the provisions of the CARES Act, and they also put up a portal. Uh, CARES Act funding is designed to fill the tank 
for uh, COVID-19 related expenditures in order, according to Treasury, in order to get your reimbursement, and it is a reimbursement, uh, states and cities will have to file a claim, like an unemployment claim, with documentation. Beyond that, however, I suggest you go to the Treasury's FAQ site or get in touch with your member of Congress or senator's, uh, senator's office to, to fully explain that. The rules are still being written. Everything is in flux, so things, things may change. We have, we have a bunch of questions on property taxes. If Matt's numbers are correct, about half of the people who have home mortgages pay their taxes, their, their state or local property taxes through their mortgage bank or mortgage servicer. Many people aren't able to pay right now or are getting forbearance. So what's going to be the, the effect of uh, delayed or defaulted property taxes? I know this is a big concern in, in Philly. And so do you want to take a stab at that, Susan, or, or Matt? Sure, I'd be, uh, I'd be pleased right. to, and then I'll turn to Matt. This is a major concern nationwide because of the role of non-banks and their fragility. Non-banks are responsible for 70% of uh, mortgage payments uh, going out in the U.S. today, and as much as. And they're under tremendous pressure because of where there is forbearance for um, mortgages right now, no questions asked, those payments are st still have to be made uh, advanced to both investors for the mortgage-backed securities, investors, and also to uh, local governments for taxes. As of now, uh, there are um, approximately 4% of borrowers have requested forbearance and the question is whether that's going to go up dramatically. It could. The mortgage bankers uh, are um, MBA are projecting it might go up to $45 billion in request for uh, forbearance and a rate of 25%. If that's the case, the non-bank mortgage servicers, who at this point are responsible for advancing payments to localities, uh, will have difficulty in doing so. In response to this, Ginny May has put up a liquidity facility, but Ginny May's liquidity facility is not enabled to pay local governments or taxes. So there will have to be a response, and that response will have to be in place for Fannie and Freddie. Chairman Powell is saying that the Fed is watching this carefully, so stay tuned. There will be a response if it's needed. Oh, so this is Matt. The the numbers, um, Bill, weren't exactly that. I think it was it was something smaller than that. What percentage of um, homeowners actually pay property taxes through a mortgage if they have one? But you know, overall, I think from a policy perspective, this is another cash flow issue for them. But it's less of a long term credit issue. To the extent we're talking about temporary moratoriums or suspensions of tax payments versus the forgiveness of tax payments it's a totally different matter. So it will eat into the cash balances that locals have to the extent they get a lot of people delaying on their on their property tax payments. Um, and it could cause them to either pull resources from other places where they wouldn't normally pull resources or to take out third third party working capital lines or what have you. But on the idea that most of that money should get repaid, property tax collections nationwide are typically paid at a rate, you know, well north of 90%.
95, 96. And if you include the payment of back taxes, it's typically even even higher than that. So, you know, that sufficiency of of the levy, even if it takes an extra three or six months, it should be less of a long-term concern for sort of the other stakeholders in government. But for managers in government, it does create, you know, there's no doubt that it's a that it's a it's a near-term liquidity issue that they're going to have to manage through. Well, let me ask you about another choke point, Matt, and anybody else who wants to to, to chime in, please do. Many states, cities, counties, uh, districts uh, have sold special revenue bonds backed by uh, HOTAC, Pitsy Taxes. Uh, San Diego comes to mind. There's there's airport uh, airport revenue related bonds. Any re- special revenue bonds having to do with with travel, tourism, uh, sales tax. Uh, Sales tax collections, perhaps. What's uh, what's going to happen with with all these uh, all these special revenue bonds? And does any of the Fed's uh, liquidity facility encompass these uh, these entities? I think what you're going to see is an acceleration of a trend that is already in existence, which is that the general obligation bond will slowly disappear in favor of a fully collateralized revenue bonds, that people will not lend money unless there is a security interest in a specific stream of revenue. Because one thing that we learned very dramatically in the 70s was that a general obligation bondholder does not have a security interest in any of the revenues that are the source of their debt service payments. So therefore, There are many institutions, including some very wise insurance companies, that don't buy anything other than fully collateralized revenue bonds. And that's going to change the nature of municipal lending, in my judgment, very dramatically. I don't know whether you agree, Matt, but... Yeah, oh, no, I mean, I, I think that you could certainly, depending on what happens um, over the next six months, if we if we do see more general governments, you know, being forced to freeze debt service payments for a period of time, then you could certainly see in the future uh, lenders preferring a structure, you know, preferring even more forcefully than they have a structure like that. In the very near term, though, just thinking about that that idea of, of a special revenue structure, I, I think it comes down to the sponsoring government's perspective on the asset that was financed and the essentiality of it. And how likely they are to want to keep that asset. So like earlier this week, the MBTA in Boston disclosed that they are doing extraordinary support for some parking revenue bonds that are potentially at, at risk. So the MBTA disclosed that as of you know for July or ahead of the July 1st debt service payment and the January 1st debt service payment uh, next year, the, the MBTA will assure that there's enough money in the debt service fund to to make sure that debt service is paid. MBTA has no obligation to do that, but it's making an effort to make sure that it holds on to that asset, even if it can't pay. Now, you have also sort of, you know, there's maybe more risk in, like always, in the muni market, the risk is carried by um, the smaller and less well-prepared, less, you know, generally less solvent entities. So you could have bonds that financed a specific facility like um, an ice rink or even a utility that are ultimately backstopped by the general government and might have a direct backstop. And those might be less well used. So because the governments themselves 
are in trouble and less able to uh, to uh, devote cash to, to to preserve the asset. It comes down to you know sort of the sense of how much the government wants to keep that asset that was financed and and their own sort of internal ability and willingness to retain it. So you know we don't know, and I mean no one has the magic brain that could tell us what you know what is ultimately going to happen. There's enough questions across the municipal market to assume that there's going to be a lot more impairments and defaults in the in the coming year or so. We're tracking that very closely here. But you, in the end, you don't you know, it is it will come down to these very minute questions at the local level. Thanks, Matt. We've got a, a, a bunch of questions about pensions. It's probably the last thing on people's minds right now. But uh, as I mentioned, when we got started, it's a it's a big budget number. So. One question is, uh, do you see any likelihood of um, states or cities or counties uh, leveraging the CARES Act to do state loans as pension obligation bonds, perhaps tied to some strings about improving funding behavior? The second question is, um, the economy is in pretty tough shape right now. What are the rating agencies going going to do and say about states and cities with big unfunded pension liabilities. And we're thinking about not just Illinois, but Philadelphia, Kentucky, Kansas, you know, Chicago, you you, you name it, there, there are trouble spots all over the map. Who would like to weigh in on that? I'd be glad to say what may be the obvious bill, which is that the burden that will fall upon states that have pension obligations that they didn't adequately fund over the years will just increase their burden, tax burdens, but those obligations will be subordinate to the money that they need to cover things like health care, police, fire, sanitation, etc. So I suspect that uh, the risk of substantial over a longer period of time, obviously, uh, of unpaid pension benefits is going to be a major, major issue for hundreds of thousands of of retired public employees. Just to gently disagree with Dick a little on that point, uh, I think that you have um, when you're talking about the sort of the the net impact on pension funding from what has just happened in the financial markets, in general, entities or governments that have fewer assets invested have taken smaller dollar losses because they just don't didn't have as much money to lose. So if you're 20% funded in your pension and you have just lost 20% of your assets, you're only 16% funded now. Still terrible. If you were 100% funded. And now you're 80% funded because you lost 20%. That's a major shift and a major incremental policy, you know, budget cost that you have to navigate um, over the long term, which is ultimately what pensions are. Pensions are ultimately a, a major constraint on budgets that this pandemic has now made more complicated for everybody, admittedly. On the idea of pension bonds, I would hate to see the federal government encouraging states to use pension bonds to get through this crisis in part because pension bonds are not uh, definitionally bad, but pension bonds are best done when the point of the pension bond is to fix the pension funding, um, not to get through a near-term cash problem. 
pension obligation bonds in the muni market have almost always been done, unfortunately, to get through a near-term cash flow problem to reduce taxes or to get some employer payment holidays. If that's what, and those are the worst kind of financings because they add leverage and risk to a to a state in all kinds of ways just to get through a, a little bit of savings. So you know, if pension bonds again, I mean, if we're thinking about them as a solution to a near-term crisis, that's like you are you are setting yourself up for a series of pension bonds that are bad ideas. So hopefully that's not where we go with things. Let me just say one last thing, Bill. And with all respect to Matt, who's far more knowledgeable than I, but oh, I doubt that. Borrowing <laughs> money to fund pension systems is outrageous, and if that is forced to stop as a result of this current crisis, that is the one good thing that might come out of it. Well, there I agree with you, Dick. Uh, where we are totally aligned on that point. Right. And the pension problem that states and localities have is really a subset of a national a national retirement savings issue. We're approaching a, a solvency point for Social Security. Americans have not saved a whole heck of a lot in, in 401ks and IRAs. So at the end of the day, we're, we're still grappling with a demographic crisis that may be may not be as severe as the as the covid crisis or as sudden. But it's going to it's going to creep up on us and it's going to involve some some really serious policy decisions. Uh, I've got one last question, which I think we partly answered before. It comes from um, Joseph Moore in the Arizona Auditor General's office. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us. And by the way, uh, a shout out and thank you to Antonio Weiss, uh, Volcker Alliance board member and key member of the uh, of of the Treasury, the, the U.S. Treasury team in the Obama administration. And I appreciate your uh, your, your dialing in uh, to today's discussion. Uh, so the question is about about rainy day funds and what states are going to do. I mentioned. Before that, it's it's eight percent of general fund uh, general fund expenditures uh, as the median, so it's it's not the be all or end all. But uh, we have a lot of states and localities with a cash flow with a cash flow problem coming up because of the, the moving the, the tax date. How much how much are states going to borrow to cover this, or how much are they going to dip into re, into reserves? You have some states that that just never dip into in, into rainy day funds. It like takes more than an act of Congress and an act of God to to do it. Well, I'll, I'll just quickly chime in that it's going to be less now that we have the MLF. That I think is going to be the first fund to be tapped, and rightly so because it should be at very low rates, and it's that's what it's there for. Right, and interesting. This question comes from from a state, Arizona, that uh, after the last recession had a uh, an overnight credit line with uh, with Bank of America that was uh, done through public bidding. That all, but it it was rolled over every night and was was quite costly because the state had the state had absolutely no cash. So the the Fed is really is really helping out a lot on this. So we're approaching the top of the hour. I know everybody's everybody's busy working at home, and uh, efficiency is about probably seventy five percent of what it should be. So we don't want to keep you beyond the the appointed time. Thank you, uh, thank you again to everyone at at the Volcker Alliance, at the uh, at the Penn IUR staff. 
You're wonderful. We're going to see you all again next week, April 23rd, 11 a.m. You can register at VolkerAlliance.org or watch your email for an invitation. We're going to be looking at stress testing state budgets and the critical role of rainy day funds. Speaking of rainy day funds, it's a very special discussion. Dan White from Moody's Analytics, Catherine Barrett and uh, Rich Green of uh, Barrett and Green and the Volcker Alliance Budget Task Force, and Scott Patterson, former head of the National Governors Association, and NASBO, the National Association of State Budget Officers, and now a fellow at University of Ottawa. We'll have a lively discussion about that, and we hope you will all join us. Thank you very much, and uh, and have a great rest of today and a great weekend.